You're listening to Button Accordion Player and 2016 National Heritage Fellow, Billy McComiskey. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. There are three important things to know about Billy McComiskey. One, he's a terrific button accordionist who plays traditional Irish music. Two, Although he was born in New York City, he's largely responsible for the robust traditional Irish music scene in the Baltimore-Washington area. And three, his focus is always on relationships. Ask him if he came from a musical family, and you'll find out the name of the teacher who taught the teacher who taught his grandfather back in Ireland. Mention a piece of Irish music you like, you'll get a history of the tune and the differences in the way that it's played in Mayo, Galway, or Donegal and compliment him, you'll get a litany of the great players who came before him, as well as the younger ones coming behind, and what he's learned from each. For Billy McComiskey, everything is connected, and he's part of a much greater whole, just doing the best that he can. Well, the best Billy McComiskey can do is very good indeed. He was part of two legendary Irish music groups, the Irish Tradition and then Trian. In 1986, he won the coveted All-Ireland Championship for the Button Accordion. His 2008 solo CD, Outside the Box, won the Irish Echoes Album of the Year, and the Echo named him its Traditional Artist of the Year in 2011. And Billy McComiskey is a master in the Maryland Traditions Apprenticeship Program, teaching younger players about traditional Irish music. And let's not forget he accomplished this as he was working a full-time job and raising three sons with his wife, Annie. It goes without saying, it's a home filled with music. How many accordions do you have? (laughs) I don't know. It's somewhere around a dozen. Yeah, they're, they're thrown all over the house. Two of my three sons are very good players, so they end up bringing boxes in. That's what we call them, the call boxes. Over here, I guess, I hear the expression, oh, you play the squeeze box. And, and I guess, yeah. yeah, I do play the squeeze box. But, <laughs> but we, don't, we don't call it a squeeze. We just call it a box. You grew up in New York City. Yeah. Grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. 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 Tell me about your growing up. Was it a musical household? Did you hear music a lot? Did your parents play? It was all about music. But it wasn't just about music. It was about Irish music. My grandmother, Nora Sweeney, was a step dancer. And all her brothers played a little something. Maybe uh, they all had flutes and fiddles, and if they didn't do that, they'd sing, and they'd enjoy a, a bit of a jar, as they would say. And my, gra- my grandfather, though, was like a pretty quiet fella, and he loved to dance. He was a step dancer, and he loved to play the fiddle. It was very, very good. My mother, she was Mae McConaughey, she was an Irish step dancer, and her two brothers, Matt, played the accordion, and Andy was a, a flute player. And they all had, everybody had regular jobs, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and, and managed just living there in Brooklyn. And my, my father came out, oh, I guess maybe 1948, right around the time this accordion was built. When he came, it was when my uh, father came out from Northern Ireland. He was a, an Irish Catholic. When World War II was kind of getting to a fever pitch, my father and his father talked about the state of affairs in Ireland and Eng- England, and they knew they knew what was going on in England with the um, colonialism. They knew that was wrong, but they also knew that Hitler had to be stopped. 
So somehow or another, I, I don't know how he did it, somehow or another, my father ended up in the Queen's Royal Air Force, uh, a pilot. He was a farmer, not a particularly well-educated man. The Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland got whatever education they could. But somehow or another, he got flew, flew the Lancaster bomber and the uh, Spitfire. And he trained here. He trained in, in Oklahoma. And when he got a look at the land and the scope here, he decided... If I survive, I'm coming back. And he did, but he never he never made it out of Brooklyn. He was he he went out to his aunt's house in Brooklyn, and there was a, a row house for sale in Brooklyn in downtown Brooklyn. Somehow or another, he came up with the money and bought this house. This this is something that Irish people, especially Northern Irish Catholics, you cannot do. And he saw it and he bought it, and he he started a, a little hardware store for himself, and he eventually worked as a, a maintenance mechanic. He lived by his wits. He's one of the greatest immigrants. Well, how old were so, you when you started playing, or when you first picked up the box? Well, the first time I remember doing a gig was at my uncle's house up in the Catskills. and He'd have these house parties in his boarding house. He didn't charge anybody to stay there. But if you could sing or dance or you're a bit of fun and you enjoyed it, he'd just give you a room and then everybody would go and there'd be a bit of a party. And and he, and so he was playing. I was like five or six. And he said, do you want to help me with this? I said, sure, sure. And so he handed me two spoons and I just rattled away behind him on the table with the two spoons. And I just absolutely loved it. So you love making music from an early age. When did you actually start playing the accordion? My cousin, John Sweeney, he went to Germany. He was in the Navy, and while he was in Germany, he brought back a little Honer accordion, and it had a little black button on it, and I always just thought that was the, the neatest thing. And he showed me the couple of tunes that he knew on it. He leaned more toward the fiddle himself. But he was able to get me started, and then without saying anything, he just left the accordion there. He was just the nicest, just the nicest guy. After that, were you largely self-taught? Was there anybody who who really taught you when you were younger? The funny thing about it was, uh, for the for the little bit that I learned from John, it was enough to get started. And we would go to the clubs. It's not like you could just go out and get a music lesson. You go, oh my, you know. I think I was about maybe 10, and pretty pretty stone mad for it. I loved it. I'd go up to my uncle's house. My grandmother would take me out to the music clubs, and my mother and father were always having house parties. And I remember when I was about 10 or 11, he, 11 hearing this man named Joe Cooley. Joe Cooley was one of these charismatic individuals. He was a, a box player from County Galway, and somehow or another he ended up in my godfather pat murphy's bar in the catskills and that was that was it right there it was a done deal when when i met joe cooley he was like a really phenomenal uh, individual and maybe two or three years after that i met a man by the name of sean mclinn sean mclinn was from east galway carpenter by trade and this here this is his old accordion there's a couple of buttons sticking on it now i dropped it you became a devotee of the East Galway style of playing. That's right, yeah. Can you explain what that is and maybe give us a demonstration? Yeah. As it turns out, as they look back on it now, it's be, it's regarded in this broader 
perspective now. So it's kind of now called this Lee Vakti style. Because there was two guys. There was Joe Cooley from Galway and this other guy, Patty O'Brien from Tipperary. And they both played in this incredibly good band at different times, the Tullochaley band. It was Joe Cooley that brought Irish traditional music to the public's eye here in America. When I heard him in the Cascos, every player in Boston, New York City, any, anywhere within 100 miles, and that was kind of a lot back then, just came. This was no internet, no, no advertisement, nothing, but in our community, in the Irish traditional music community, they heard that Joe Cooley was going to be there, and so everybody just went. You could see why they went. It was like meeting a great statesman. It was just an incredible experience. Patty O'Brien kind of stayed at home. And then he came here for a little while. He got a job in New York City driving a bus. And so he had two reputations. Not only was he arguably the greatest of the Irish accordion players to ever live, he was also the worst bus driver ever to drive in New York City. So he said he just went home, he gave it up, and he went back to Ireland. So there was, so this thing went on. He, he never had a formal music school Paddy O'Brien, but he taught and he influenced so many players, and he taught kids to play in bands, these dance bands, they call them Cayley bands, accordions and fiddles and drums and pianos, really, they put the hair standing on him, but he was a, a brilliant composer as well. What is the East Galway style? I got completely sidetracked there. The, so they kind of called it the East Galway style because of Joe Cooley mm -hmm. and then this other brilliant accordion player who is also alive and well now, the great Joe Burke. And there was another one, Kevin Keegan and Sean McGlenn, my own mentor. So these guys played this old music from Ireland. The, the amazing thing that happened around 1950 is these guys figured out how to play this old music from the 1600s, 1700s. It really goes back. Turlock O'Carolan, the harper, the great harper and composer, people started writing his music down in the early 1700s. Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales, they refer to it. It was just raging with music. It's what the Celts did. It's what they love to do. It's how they express themselves socially. East Galway music in general is kind of long, and, you know, it has... If that makes any sense, you'd be, it'd be, there'd be maybe flat sevens mixed in with, you know, regular sevens, or a triplet would become a roll. Instead of three notes, it would be five. And how does this all fit together? How can you take this little instrument and make it sound compatible with these instruments from 200 years ago? Younger, when you were younger, mm. and you were still living in New York, yeah. what was the music scene like then? The Irish music scene, obviously. There were a handful of older players that had immigrated out here in maybe the 20s and 30s, and they managed to make a living in New York. And as you know, like the song goes, if you can make it there, these guys, these were hardworking men, and they'd have jobs and they'd play 
when they had a chance. It's always been the same thing. Everybody's played because they love it. So my grandmother and my mother, May McComiskey, they, they would take turns. They wanted to make sure that I was able to get out to hear the music because I had to hear the music. I, I, so it's the way you learned. It's how I survived as a human being. I had to hear the music. So we went to these musicians' clubs, and it would be maybe in the back room of a bar. Uh, the old Rainbow Cafe was on 39th Street and 5th Avenue in Bay Ridge. There was a pretty good pizza parlor, very handy. And every Sunday afternoon, the musicians would go there. It was maybe 25 cents admission at the door. So that's how I got to hear the players. And when I went to Ireland, I noticed, like in 1970, when I first started to go over, uh, for the festivals and whatever was going on or competing. I noticed over there that it was the same thing. It was these clubs in these back rooms of hotels or something like that. Irish music was kind of frowned upon in Ireland and in, in the United States. People associated it, again, with colonialism, poverty, war, tragedy. You know, there's an awful lot of sadness amongst the Irish. Billy, will you describe sessions? I mean, I know it's when Irish musicians get together and play, but can you kind of describe what goes on in them? So a session would be, these people were like enormously talented, and it's an oral tradition, so they didn't know how to read music, they didn't know much about music theory, and then Jesus, uh, Paddy, no, how, how do you have to, how do you turn the second part of that tune? Turn would be, how's the second part of the tune go? And a fiddle player and a flute player would sit, and they'd be negotiating a little tune. And I remember, like it was yesterday, sitting with Sean McGlenn, and we were trying to figure out how to play this Martin Wynn fiddle tune. And in the course of two bars, it covered two and a half octaves. It really took a long range on it. And we were trying to figure out how to finger this tune, kind of like how a pianist would do, and myself and Sean McGlenn. And when we finally got it, Sean says to me, he says, there's the, there's the difference right now. He says, they're all down in the bar singing and dancing and having a great time. And here we are sitting in the kitchen worried about one note. <laughs> the way they would, you know, discuss the music and or I will should know you have that all wrong. And, and so you meet these guys. And, and next thing, uh, we, well, we should try. We'll have a session. I think I think he's that. He's, he do that long. Ah, well, then Jesus, we're going to have and you'd have to you'd have to sit down and try to find out what you have in common because it's just very very important and to keep yourself calm you'd have a little something to drink and then the next thing it would be the next day but that's it, what a session is from what i understand mm. and you can please correct me if i'm wrong it's a little more structured than jamming with everybody doing this kind of free for all yeah yeah a tune say I, if the button doesn't stick on me so the, that right there is that Martin Wynn tune that we were trying to figure out. How does this tune go? How can we make that work on this accordion? That tune, that is how the tune goes. And then when it turns... kind of re resolves on this six note, just kind of B minor note, going like, what? Why? I wonder what he was thinking. I don't even know if Martin Wynn knew, knew how to write a tune with paper, 
but he knew exactly how he wanted that tune to sound. And so then how does the bowing go? What was he thinking there? And Irish music, it's been around a really long time, and it's a labor of love that people have been trying to keep. They've been trying to keep this art intact for many centuries, and it's an awful lot of fun doing that. It's just a tremendous amount of fun. So if, and then if a tune has a way that it goes, then that's a lovely thing. Maybe the fiddlers and Donegal would shorten the bow a little bit, or the box players would have an extra long note, or a roll would go here. And it's just a lovely social thing. Now, you took that lovely social thing in some ways, and you brought it down here. Yeah. For years, you were part of a trio, as you mentioned, playing Capitol Hill at the Dubliner, that's part right. of the Irish tradition. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that experience. What was it like playing there? It was chaotic, and it was pretty much through the roof. It was. What year was this? 1975. Okay. And uh, was there Irish music down here then, or were you really bringing it in some ways? We brought it. Lou Thompson was living down in Washington, and, he's, and he was talking to the manager. And in, in the Dubliner, they were trying to figure out, what can we do to make this really authentic? They wanted the traditional music. They wanted the old music. They wanted the sessions. They wanted everything that Irish music truly is. They knew that they could find musicians that would want to come to would jump at the chance for a gig like this because the Capitol building was right there. Lou Thompson and Peggy Reardon knew exactly where to look and who to look for. They actually came up to the Bronx. I was playing in a place called the Bunratty Pub, and they'd pay you $50, and you could have all the Heineken you could drink. <laughs> and that was the deal. So they came up to the Bunratty because I had a reputation for... I wasn't <laughs> very businesslike. I'd go out to play at a, a fesh, a dancing thing, and then wander off and end up in a music session. So they kind of thought, well, this is our guy. This is what we want. And I said to them, well, you can't play that. You can't play Irish music in an Irish bar. You can't do that. If you're in an Irish bar, you do Irish drinking songs or Irish-American Danny Boy songs. But they decided, no, this is what Irish music has been for centuries. And they said, I think if you go, and they were thinking, if we can do that, and if you guys can pull it off, and then that'll be authentic, and then the bar will do good, and everything will be terrific. And they were right. Billy McComiskey formed the Irish tradition with fiddler Brendan Mulvihill and singer-guitarist Billy O'Brien. And the trio headed for the Dubliner in Washington, D.C., just went in there and it just kind of started to work and next thing WGTB the Georgetown University station started having a Celtic music show on I think it was either Saturday or Sunday between that show and just the barb was really good you could go in there and there's an awful lot of attorneys and, uh, and their aides Ted Kennedy really and Tip O'Neill these guys, they really enjoyed it. If you're going to have a bar, these are the guys. These would be the Irish-American guys you'd want in it. Just, we were oblivious. We didn't even know what was going on. And just like that, Irish music found a new audience in Washington.
And along with the politicians and journalists, people from the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, and the National Endowment for the Arts were paying attention and liking what they were hearing. The other thing that was remarkable, I think, was between the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Here's the Smithsonian, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, 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 sure, we love Irish music, and guy, Alan Jabor, and these guys from the National Council from, for the Traditional Arts, they'd just be kind of sitting there, having a beer, they'd just walk across the mall, and oh, there's a nice bar over on F Street. It was just so an amazing... an audience that was so broad. Broad, very, very bright, and these were the pioneers, these folklorists, you know, ethnomusicologists, mm -hmm. these were the guys, Joe Wilson, these were them, and Joe Wilson... He'd come out to us and he said, you guys sound like a bunch of old farmers up there. I love it. You know, he was like such a nice guy, so genuine. But we didn't know how fascinating it was. We kind of had an idea of how lucky we were, but we were just having way too much fun. And there was a lovely kind of hip scene going on, kind of like a parallel to what was going on in, in Dublin at the same time. The Irish tradition played at the Dubliner for three years, and the trio remained together for 12. In the course of that, I met my wife from Baltimore, so I kind of was moved out of D.C. to Baltimore. Now there is like a lovely scene, sessions and gigs and concert work in D.C., and Baltimore is spectacular. How did you help the Irish music scene in Baltimore develop? For my own sanity, I kind of had to do it. I, I got myself a trade first, and I was able to get a modest little job, and I worked the job for 26 years. I guess the beautiful thing about the music is it's self-sustaining, and you've, you fall in love with it. You have to, you have to have it. You, you have, it's, it's who, it becomes who you are. So by the time I moved up here, a couple of Vietnam vets opened a bar in Pigtown, and the bar was called The Gandhi Dancer. And they actually had a liquor license, and they were licensed to have live music, and they could even have dancing. So it was like a kind of cool thing. And it kind of blossomed into Cayley dancing. And, and Cayley dancing is social dancing. Cayley dancing is kind of 19th century organized social dancing. So that's, there's a whole set dance scene in Ireland. There's like tens of thousands of people that do these dances all over, all over Ireland. And that caught on in New York City, and then it, it ended up catching on down, down here. The funny thing about down here, I, I guess it's because of all this interest in folklore and this whole scholarly way of approaching Irish music. It's, it's a more progressive music scene in this area. It's not driven by Irish immigrants. It's not driven by old world values. What, what goes on in the mid-Atlantic area here is kind of Irish music at a very high standard. And the dancing is getting pretty good, too. It's social dancing, but it's, it's a very high level of social dancing. There's a lot of footwork. And you it. started a Cayley band. Yeah. And down in Washington, there were all these young players. You know, we were all hippies, old college kids, and all, all that kind of thing. And when I came up here, there's like a kind of more of a working class kind of bunch of people doing it. But again, it was kind of the same motivation. So I figured we can put together the Baltimore-Washington Cayley Band. It just sounded like a big, long name. It reminded me of the Little Rascals or something. And we did the best we could. We actually won the Kyoltis competition for the 
North American Championship, and I was going to try to bring the band to uh, to Ireland, but it was it was like herding cats. It just it's impossible. So I went over myself. It was 1986. And I just went over as a soloist that year, and I, and I won. I won in 1986. Yes, indeed, you did. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. part of another legendary trio and trian yeah with liz carroll another heritage fellow <laughs> another heritage fellow yeah and dahi dahi sprule he was the the singer guitar player i should say you did three cds with irish tradition yeah three with the irish tradition, which was unheard of at the, at the time yeah and two with trian two with trian um, and it was all new compositions that we'd come up with. Yeah, you, you've you written, what, 30-plus songs? Yeah, I guess they'd be called tunes. Tunes. Yeah. When but did you I, start writing? I guess the trick was, when did I start putting them down? Because I was always making up tunes. written uh, a jig and a hornpipe, and uh, Sean McGlynn, who was a very, very positive kind of guy, and he, he said, would you show, show me those couple of tunes that, that you wrote? And I did. And so the two of us would sit and play, they're lovely tunes, you, you should write more. This was what he said. And when the great Patty O'Brien uh, came out from Tipperary, I was sitting on the stage playing my tunes with Sean McGlynn. And Larry Redigan, our great Dublin fiddler, very prolific composer. He was in the back talking with Patty, and next thing, Larry Redigan came up and he whispered something to Sean, and then he went off again, and Sean just goes, come on, we'll play some more. And I said, well, what did, what did Larry say? Are we playing up here too long? He said, Larry came up to tell me that Patty O'Brien loved those tunes you wrote. How gentlemanly and subtle is that? It's like such a really beautiful, simple little thing. And here I am, 50 years later, and I still treasure that instant in the music. It's like such a lovely thing. And you were named a 2016 National Heritage Fellow. <laughs> Has it sunk in? It's, uh, it's, it's really nice. It's a lot of fun, yeah. And true to form, ask Billy McComiskey for his thoughts about receiving the 2016 National Heritage Award, and he immediately talks about a great player who came before him. I actually get emotional when I think about it. I met Joe Heaney. I don't know if you'd be familiar with Joe Heaney. Joe Heaney was a maintenance man in Brooklyn, and he loved to sing. He was a Connemara singer, and he was a collector of what they called Shano's songs. So I actually got to play at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. I don't know, was it 1975 or 1976? And here was the very first National Heritage Fellowship recipient, Joe Heaney. He had given songs to the Clancy Brothers. And this whole time, he was just a maintenance man. And we sat there in awe. I remember Andy O'Brien couldn't 
talk. He couldn't. He couldn't do anything. He was so in awe, uh, just being there with him, you know. And he was just such, such the gentleman. And we just couldn't get over what a decent person. And then when he sang, it was like, and all of a sudden, in the course of a week, everybody knew what Shano's singing was and and what role it played in Irish traditional music and. The National Heritage Fellowship has everything to do with that. It has everything to do with that. He's the first one. That's what the National Heritage Fellowship is. Congratulations, Billy. I am so glad. So many congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's 2016 National Heritage Fellow, button accordion player, Billy McComiskey. You can find out more about Billy and the other eight recently named Heritage Fellows at arts.gov. And stay tuned for details about the September 30th Heritage Concert. You've been listening to Artworks. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.